0: Lord, for Jeff, Lord, we pray now, Lord, that as he brings your word, Lord, that you feel from him, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for his desire, Lord, to share your Lord with Your word with others, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this time, Lord, that we can come and remember you, Lord. Lord, help us, Lord, um, open our hearts and our minds, Lord, that we may hear and put into actions, Lord, what you want us to do, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. It is good to be with you and thank you for the invitation to join you i don't i understand you're going through 1 corinthians and it has fallen to my lot to take up 1 corinthians chapter 14 Back when I was in school, we had a little rhyme that went this way. Spare a thought for Jimmy Brown, poor Jimmy is no more. For what he thought was H2O, was H2SO4. For those of you who don't know what that means, what he thought was water turned out to be sulfuric acid. And I have a sneaking suspicion that I am playing with nitroglycerine when I come to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And so we come to a chapter that, by anyone's confession, is a very controversial chapter discussing a very controversial subject. So if you brought some rotten eggs and some potatoes to throw at me halfway through, can I beg that you'll put them in your bag and take them home, use them tomorrow for an omelet, uh, because uh, we, we don't want to have uh, an argument over 1 Corinthians chapter 14. seems to me that when we get into these particular issues, there are going to be a wide variety of opinions. And perhaps the best thing for us to do with these contentious issues is to be like the Bereans, and when we hear something, we go home and check it by the Scripture to see if what we have heard connects and compares to and and coheres with what's in the Bible. And if what we hear doesn't, then I'm here for two more Sundays and you're welcome to file a complaint or to forward a question and we can think together and as we think together we can forge an understanding. I'm, uh, I'm delighted you're going through 1 Corinthians. It's a book I love for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is it tells us that issues in the Christian church must be confronted, can no longer sweep problems under the mat and pretend they don't exist, because this book brings them all out. But the lovely thing about 1 Corinthians is that it not only addresses problems in the church, but it shows us how to address those problems in a compassionate but decisive way. I love the book uh, not only because it's an example on dealing with things, but uh, the book is a very practical book. It tells me how to walk with God in a world that is shot through with sin. It's a very relevant book. I always smile because Chuck Misler calls this book First Californians because he sees the problems in 1 Corinthians mirrored in what was his home state of California. And it's true. The issues of the first century are still the issues of today. And 1 Corinthians is a very, very relevant book. And to an extent, it's a frightening book because it shows to us the degree to which we all bring baggage into the church. It shows us that the spirit of the age can move into the local church simply because when we get saved, we're not transformed overnight. We're facing issues that keep on coming up over and over again. And when you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, you realize that this church had significant issues. And their attitude was anything but godly. And yet Paul said to them in the first chapter, I'm glad to be with you. You come behind in no gift. And you are eagerly waiting the return of the Lord Jesus. Because he's the one who shed his blood to save them, so they're true Christians, but the situation is quite frightening. And yet the book is not only frightening, but very encouraging. If 1 Corinthians says anything to us today, it says this. Real Christians have big problems. But big problems have real answers, and 1 Corinthians turns us to those answers, as we will find. Well, a little recap for those of you who have been working your way slowly through 1 Corinthians. You'll know that the book is divided into two parts, chapters 1 to 6, Paul is uh, responding to reports that he has had about the problems in Corinth. And the problems are personal problems over division. There are moral problems that you encounter in chapter 5. There are legal issues he addresses in chapter 6. And in the latter part of chapter 6, there are issues of carnality, and one of the New Testament vice lists is uh, contained in the last part of chapter 6. But 1 to 6 is Paul responding to reports that he has heard from Chloe's household about the problems that you have in Corinth. By the time you get to chapter 7, the book turns and he begins to address not reports that he has had, but questions they have raised. And so in chapter 7, you have the question of Christian marriage. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, you have the question of Christian freedom. Then when you get to chapter 11, verse 2, all the way through chapter 14, verse 40, you have the question of Christian meetings. Now that's followed in chapter 15 with the question of Christian hope. And he spends a whole chapter on the resurrection. And when you get into... 1 Corinthians 16, you have the question of Christian stewardship and money. Well, the passage that falls to our lot this morning is right in that section on Christian meetings, and it goes from chapter 11, verse 2, right through to chapter 14, verse 40. And in that section on Christian meetings, three subjects are raised. Chapter 11, verse 2 through 16 concerns the place of women in Christian meetings. Then from chapter 11, 17 through to verse 37, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is addressed. And then when you get to chapter 12, 13 and 14, you've got what some people think is the issue of spiritual gifts. But we would be dead wrong. But we would be dead wrong. Because the issue that is raised in chapter 12, 13, and 14 is in fact much more specific than spiritual gifts. Twenty times in chapter 12, 13, and 14 you have reference to the gift of tongues 20 times. Now, prophecy approximates that, but all of the other gifts that he discusses in chapter 12 are only mentioned once or twice. The big gift that he addresses in 12, 13, and 14 is the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues. And it has become a huge issue in the Corinthian church. So, with your permission, we'll take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians, and we'll begin in chapter 12 just to get an overview of this problem, and then we'll proceed to chapter 14. You will notice that in chapter 12, there are 3 lists of gifts if you put your finger on verse 8 you will find the first list it says there is one there is uh, to one there is given through the spirit the message of wisdom to another the message of knowledge by means of the same spirit to another faith to another gifts of healing by that one spirit to another miraculous powers to another, prophecy, to another, distinguishing between spirits, to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are of one and same spirit he gives to each one, just as he determines. What I want you to notice is the discussion of the list of gifts, but I want you to notice where tongues features. It's right at the end. And you'll find it mentioned in verse 10. Now let's go in chapter 12 to the second list. And you will find it in verse 28. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. And the list finishes. But you will notice where tongues comes in the list. It comes right at the end. Now he begins a sec- a third list. Have a look at verse 29. Are all apostles? Meaning, no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues. Do all interpret. And so here's the third mention of tongues in 1 Corinthians 12, and again it's right at the end. Now I think we have to be big enough to say that tongues is at the end of these discussions not because it is an unimportant gift, not because it is an embarrassing gift, but because the church at Corinth has put a distorted emphasis on the gift of tongues. So if you wanted to write over chapter 12, a title that will help you understand it, it would be a distorted emphasis on the gift of tongues. And Paul is surreptitiously correcting that distorted emphasis by putting tongues last every time He mentions the gift because it has become a huge problem, like it has in evangelicalism today. And it seems to me that when you get to chapter 12, this distorted emphasis on tongues creates big problems in the local assembly, to the point where you have people saying in verse 14 onwards, oh, I don't have the gift of tongues. I don't have that gift So maybe I don't fit here. Maybe I'm not part of the body. And then you have other people saying, listen here, if you're not like us, we have no need of you. And in evangelicalism today, the problem of tongues has a similar manifestation. People will say, well, you can't be saved if you don't speak in tongues because speaking in tongues is a sign of the presence of the Spirit which gets Jesus into a little bit of trouble since he had the Spirit without measure, but there's no record of him ever speaking in tongues. Or some people will say, "Uh, you are not a victorious Christian. You might be a Christian, but you're limping along on four cylinders. You need to be like us. We're V8s. We're, We're charging on all eight cylinders and... And if you speak in tongues, you'll be an eight-cylinder Christian like we are. So in chapter 12, Paul addresses this tendency to distort an emphasis on tongues, and he puts it last in the passage. When you get to chapter 13, most of us think of it as a chapter on love, and it is. But it's no accident that chapter 13 comes between chapter 12 and chapter 14. And if you put your finger on chapter 13, verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And it seems to me that what Paul is saying here is that in Corinth, they not only had a distorted emphasis on tongues, but they had a very distasteful expression of tongues. They were speaking in tongues, but without love. And so while Paul acknowledges it's important to be gifted, chapter 12, he says it's way more important to be godly, chapter 13. And when you come to the local church, you better be sure you put those two things together, giftedness and godliness, because if you don't, you'll fight. There will be disunity. And so he takes them through chapter 13 and talks about this distasteful expression of tongues in the church at Corinth. And then, having done that, he picks up chapter 14. This one chapter which is spiritual nitroglycerine for all of us today. And he begins to address a disorderly exhibition of tongues. Chapter 12, a distorted emphasis on tongues. Chapter 13, a distasteful expression of tongues without love. Chapter 14, if you have tongues without love, you will have a disorderly exhibition of that gift. And that's precisely the issue in chapter 14. So he picks this up and he uh, begins to deal with the subject. We're reading now chapter 14, verse 1. And you will see that uh, as he begins, he tells them to follow the way of love. Now, let me just stop here. Two things to remember. When Paul is dealing with gifts in chapter 12, 13, and 14, he is not writing a systematic theology on spiritual gifts. He's not giving us material to run a seminar on gifts, how many there are and how to find them. That's not his issue. He is addressing a problem regarding tongues in the Corinthian church and he sets his agenda to correct that problem. So it's a corrective piece of literature. It is not a full-orbed explanation on what spiritual gifts are. That's the first thing I want to... Uh, remind us about. And the second thing that's important is this is a discussion in the context of the church. He is not talking about tongues in private life. He's talking about tongues in the public arena, in the context of a church meeting. In fact, it's very interesting to me that wherever you find reference in the New Testament to the gift of tongues, you'll find it in Acts 2, you'll find it in Acts 10, you'll find it in Acts 19, and you'll find it here in 1 Corinthians 12-14. through And in all four references, it's a public context. It is not a passage about how to use the gift of tongues in private. It's about the gift of tongues operating in a public context and, it seems to me, the only times tongues is referred to in the New Testament is in a public context because it was never meant to operate in the private. Now, we may disagree on that. But save the potatoes and the eggs. Enjoy them tomorrow. All right, let's get into this. He's saying, follow the way of love, chapter 14, verse 1, and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Verse 4, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Let me stay right here at the outset that the problem with the gift of tongues in the Corinthian church was that because there was a distorted emphasis on that gift and because it was not coupled with love, it was expressed in a disorderly way and there are two ways in which that disorder took place form. The first was tongues was spoken without interpretation. So when you get into chapter 14, whenever Paul is talking about tongues in Corinth, he is talking about uninterpreted tongues. The second thing you will find, a second form of disorder in verse 27 through 29, and that's that the people were speaking in tongues all at the same time. Some of them praying in tongues, some of them singing in tongues, some of them praising in tongues, but it was going on across the congregation. Those are the two forms of the disorder you find in 1 Corinthians 14. One, they were uninterpreted, and two, they were used out of control. Now, had that happened, uh, had the uh, gift of tongues been coupled to the quality of love, that would never have happened. Love is not rude. It does not speak while someone is speaking over here. Love is not about expressing yourself. Love is not about concentrating on yourself or even how you feel. And if they coupled their gift of tongues to the quality of love, then love would not seek its own. Love would seek the benefit of other people. But in complete disregard to other people, they speak in tongues, and they don't even worry about it being interpreted, and they don't even worry about one at a time, and who's listening or anything else. It's just a matter of me expressing this gift that I've been given. So the the big question here is uninterpreted tongues. Now, he tells them two things. First of all, he says, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 14, follow the way of love. He's just discussed that way in chapter 13. Now he says, remember what I told you, chapter 13? Pursue it. Pursue it. It's a strong word. Follow it. Put your nose down and go after love. Because one day you're going to find that the gifts have disappeared, but love goes on forever. One day you're going to find the gifts have ceased, but love never ceases. Love is eternal. And I want you to get a correct view on spirituality. The presence of gift does not equal spirituality. Even a short look at the life of Samson should tell us that. You can have charismatic power and charismatic strength and still not be godly. So what Paul is saying here is, follow the godliness, pursue love, because the height of spirituality is not the gift of tongues, the height of spirituality is the character controlled by love. So he says, pursue love, follow love, and do not become proud, and do not become boastful, and do not become angry with your brothers who do not speak in tongues, and do not become envious of people who do speak in tongues, and do not seek your own gratification in the exercise of that gift. Follow the way of love. Now, the second thing he says is not just to follow the way of love, but he says put a premium on prophecy. Look at verse 1. Eagerly desire spiritual gifts, but especially the gift of prophecy. Now, we need to take a moment here to think this through carefully. Because it seems to me that we can get things distorted here and think that prophecy is a better gift than tongues. Well, it's not. Chapter 12 will tell you that. Just because someone's got the gift of prophecy doesn't mean they're any better than the person with the gift of tongues. In fact, when you get to the end of this chapter, you're going to find out that in a properly controlled, spiritually mature church, Tongues has an equal airing to prophecy. So when you get to verse 27, one, two, three at the most speak in tongues. One, two, three at the most speak in prophecy. Now, it seems to me that if you've got three speaking in tongues and three speaking in prophecy, those gifts are equal. It is only because Paul is addressing the distorted emphasis on tongues and the disorderly exhibition of it that he says, would you please put a moratorium on that tongue stuff? And as a local church dealing with the issues you've got, you should desire especially the gift of prophecy. Now, why should they do that? Well... Uh, because uninterpreted tongues do no one any good. Have a look at verse 2. Anyone who speaks in a tongue that is uninterpreted does not speak to men but to God. And we all go, oh, it's a prayer language. No, it's not a prayer language. Paul is saying here, If you're in church, your business is to speak so as to edify your brothers and sisters. Now, if you speak in an uninterpreted tongue, you're not edifying anyone because no one can understand you. The only person that can understand you is God because he's the creator of languages and he knows them inside out, Genesis chapter 11. But he's the only one who can understand. Uh, The person who is speaking in uninterpreted tongues is just uttering a whole bunch of mysteries that no one can get their head around, no one can even begin to understand. It's completely foreign to them. So he says, I don't want you speaking in uninterpreted tongues. What you need to do is just put that to bed for a minute and focus on prophecy. Now, why should they focus on prophecy? Look at verse 3. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Now, did you get that? Everyone who prophesies speaks to men. That's what we're here in church for. We're here to get strengthened in our faith. We're here to get encouraged. We're here to get comforted because it's rough out there. And the only way I'm going to get strengthened in my faith and encouraged and comforted is if I understand what someone is telling me. And I cannot understand a tongue that is not interpreted. So Paul says, until this is ironed out, forget it. Concentrate on prophecy, because prophecy speaks to men, and it speaks strength, it speaks encouragement, and it speaks comfort. Concentrate on prophecy. It is understandable. Now, have a look at verse uh, 5. Oh, sorry, verse 4. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. And I suppose he does. It's a known language, and he's pretty cool that he's got the gift of unknown languages which is not ecstatic language, but a language he has not learned, but a real language, and he's feeling good about the fact that he's got that. It encourages him. But he who prophesies, verse 4, edifies the church. Now look at this. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. Woo! Woo! What is this guy on about? He's he's the same fellow who back in chapter 12 says, do all speak with tongues? No. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Well then, if they're not all speaking in tongues, why in the world would Paul say here, "I I would want all of you to speak in tongues, every one of you. See, sometimes as you get to know the apostle Paul, he's a passionate individual. He says things a bit differently. Back in chapter 7, he says, I wish you were all like me, single. Must have had a rough week. I wish you were all like me, single. Well, everyone in their right mind knows that the whole church isn't going to turn single and celibate. And what's Paul saying? He says, I know it's not possible for you all to be single, but I value the singleness so much I wish you were all single. You get the idea? Not that it's possible. I don't want you go separating. I don't want you go divorcing. I don't want you breaking the engagement. I'm just saying to you, if I had my way, I'd love you all to be single so you could single-heartedly serve the Lord. I know no, it's not possible. You find it again in Romans chapter 9. I wish that I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. You what? Now, just a minute. You spend all of chapter 8 in Romans saying it's impossible to be cut off from Christ, and now you're saying, I wish that I could be cut off from Christ. You know that's not possible. Yeah, I know, but I love my people so much that if it were possible... And so what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 5, is this. Don't get me wrong about tongues. I wish you could all speak in tongues. Now, that's not possible because the Spirit hasn't given tongues to everybody. Chapter 12. But what Paul is saying is, don't think I'm putting this gift down. It's your disuse of it and your misuse of it that I'm correcting here. So... He says, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in uninterpreted tongues, unless, of course, you interpret the tongues, and then the one who speaks in prophecy is not greater. These are equal gifts. Verse 6, now brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Now that tells me this. That when someone speaks in tongues, they're bringing either a revelation or a word of knowledge or a word of prophecy or a word of instruction in a foreign language. But it is not ecstatic speech. It is a message of prophecy or knowledge or uh, uh, revelation or instruction. And then in verse 7, he says, Listen to me. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? In other words, he's saying to the musician, if you don't play your notes clearly, the people won't whistle with you. They won't even recognize the tune. What is it? Oh, come on, don't let me down like that. It's the yellow rose of Texas. The only reason we know that's the yellow rose of Texas is because you follow the notes in a certain order. Now, if you don't make those notes clear, no one's going to hum along with you. Then he goes to verse 8, if you have a look at it, and he says, again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for the battle? Now you go back to the book of Joshua and Judges and Samuel, you find out they blew a trumpet to start the war and they blew a trumpet to end it. What he's saying is, if that trumpet doesn't make a a clear note, you're going to have people starting the wars instead of ending them and ending them instead of starting them. It's going to be total confusion among the ranks. So when you blow the trumpet, make the clear note. If it's the note to go to war, make it clear. If it's the note to stop fighting, make it clear. If you're playing a tune, make the music clear or no one's going to know what you're on about. In the same way, if you have a look at verse 11, if you're having a conversation with someone, speak their language. If I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, he's a foreigner to me. So how can you have a friendship if you're not speaking the same language? It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. I can remember being in the Middle East, taking a wander around the city of Amman at night, trying to strike up a conversation with people who don't speak English. It was all over in a split second. Why? He didn't speak my language, I didn't speak his, so there's no conversation. Now what Paul is saying here is this. If you continue to speak in uninterpreted tongues, there's no point to your conversation. There's no point to your music. And the trumpet isn't letting anyone know anything at all. It is absolutely unprofitable and meaningless Verse 12, so it is with you, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church, and uninterpreted tongues don't. Now, it might seem strange for us to be saying this, because in the majority of evangelical churches today, people are singing in tongues, they're praying in tongues, they're worshipping in tongues, not one at a time, but all together, and none of it interpreted seems to me 1 Corinthians 14 has something very significant to say to our generation. If you cannot understand it, it isn't Christian. If you cannot understand it, it isn't Christian. It isn't even from God. Well, you say, that's going a bit rough. Are you saying it's from the devil? No, I'm not. I'm saying sometimes in religious experience we manufacture stuff that's acceptable to us, but it comes from us, doesn't come from him. If it comes from him, you'll understand it. And while he gives the gift of interpretation uh, gift of tongues, he gives the gift of interpretation and Paul says, you cannot have them separate. If there's no interpreter, stay quiet because Christianity is about truth propositions. Okay, as we move on uh, uh, from this, he's let me summarize what he's saying before we close. Uh, you people are showing a disorderly exhibition of tongues. Instead of that, you should covet and go after the gift of prophecy. Why? Because prophecy edifies Uninterpreted tongues don't. And the reason prophecy edifies is because it's understandable. Uninterpreted tongues are not. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret, verse 13, what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, right here, people say, oh, so the Apostle Paul spoke in tongues. Well, I can't find any, any evidence that he did, but it says here, if I pray in a tongue. Well, that's just the way he talks. If you go back to ch- chapter 13, he says, if I prophesy without love, I'm a clanging symbol. Now, you wouldn't catch Paul prophesying without love. He's just talking about the generic idea. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I'll pray with my mind also. Verse 16. If uh, if you're praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man isn't edified, and if he isn't edified, you're out of order. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words. You say, there you go, Jeff. He speaks in tongues in private. But when he gets into church, he just uses the common language. No, it isn't saying that at all. There's no evidence that Paul speaks in tongues in private here. But he says, I speak in tongues more than all of you but in church. Therefore, he must speak in tongues in private. Well, Paul just doesn't go between home and church, you know. They're not his two sole options of locality. If he's not at home, he's at church. If he's not at church, he's at home. No. He's a missionary. He's all over the world. Sometimes he's on the street corner. Sometimes he's in the marketplace. There are a hundred places Paul could speak in tongues without speaking in tongues in his bedroom. You say, but there's no record of him speaking in tongues in evangelism. That is true. I concede the point. But there's no record of him speaking in tongues in his bedroom either. So we come to this passage. Church is about edification. Four things I want to leave with you as we close. Number one, if this passage says anything to me today, it says pursue love. Pursue love. You know, I thought that stuff came naturally. I thought it was part of your hormonal makeup. And especially when you became a Christian, I thought you just ended up naturally loving, but apparently not. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. No, love doesn't happen automatically. It's a hard business. When you come into the Christian church, you know, you find some freaky people in there. Have you discovered that? We're an unusual lot because we're a microcosm of the bigger unusual lot that's out there. Now, when you think of it, think of this. We were all raised differently. Not only that, we're all wired differently. We have different personalities. Some are completely normal, like me, and some are abnormal, like you. I have a friend who, whenever she finds someone difficult, she says, you know what their problem is? They're a lot like us, only more so. That is the problem. We're all a little bit different. And so we come from different families, different traditions, different value systems, with different personalities and different theological constructs. And you're putting us all together. You know what's going to happen? There's going to be friction. So, if I was you, said Paul, I'd put the priority on love. Follow it and pursue it. And deliberately make it your goal to be a loving Christian. Because when I'm a loving Christian, my concern is going to be for you, not me. I'm going to be praying for you, not me. I'm going to be contributing to you, not me. And my concern is not how I feel and what I want to say, but how can I strengthen you in God? And how can I encourage you in God? And how can I comfort you in God? See, what I've got to do is pursue love so that I become someone who's planning to bless you. Now let me ask you a question who are you planning to bless this week? No, oh, really. Who are you planning to bless this week? Because if you don't plan it, it ain't going to happen. If you're not pursuing love, it won't eventuate. So who have you got in your sights to bless their socks off? And how are you going to do it? So that they leave you strengthened, encouraged, and comforted. Because, you know, that's what I need when I come to church. When I mix with Christians, you know what I need? I need you to strengthen me in my faith. You know what else I need? I need you to encourage me. Why? Because I need to have a holier walk. I need to have a greater love. I need to have a more intense commitment to the Lord Jesus. And you are the people that can encourage me to do that. And sometimes when I'm nursing the wounds that life inflicts, I need you to bring me a scripture that will comfort me. Forget your tongues. Leave them in the closet. And come close to me and minister to me strength and encouragement and comfort. And for those who do think they have the gift of tongues, maybe it's time to be a bit discerning. Because this week, you see, you can go home and you can take what I've said and you can measure it against this book and you can test it. And then you can get a commentary off your shelf and you can test what I say not only against the Bible but against the commentary. And then you can ring Mr. Boyens and say, Jack, give me the true scoop from heaven on this passage. I want to be 100%. And so you can ring him and get the true scoop. And you can test, and you can come to me and say, you're wrong. I had a cup of tea with Mr. Boyens, and he thinks you're smoking the devil's lawn clippings. But how do you test yourself if you think you've got the gift of tongues? Unless maybe you take a recording of it and take it to four people who think they have the gift of interpretation and see if the four people give a consensus that matches scripture. Maybe that's a helpful way of testing what we think is very important. Whatever happens, understand this. Our mind matters. We're not into empty ritual. And we are not into uninterpreted tongues. We are into truth that can be understood, banked on, and lived where the rubber meets the road. Father, we have had time this morning gathered around the bread and the wine and the worship of your Son, our one and only Savior. We want to pause today before we go home to thank you for him, for all that he means to us. We pause now and thank you for this word that you have already spoken, that is already important to us. And we pray, our Father, that your Holy Spirit will work deep inside us to bring the values from this passage so that we flesh them out this coming week. Be pleased to encourage us and strengthen us and help us and comfort us. And, oh God, conform us not only to the image of your Son, but to the truth of Scripture. So that we will please you and honor you and glorify you and walk worthy of you. We ask it in the lovely name of our Savior and to his everlasting glory. Amen.